always humbled when I'm allowed the privilege of speaking or singing or anything at this church because it's a special place to me. So I am humbled and I am honored to be with you this morning. I heard a story that might kind of help set the stage for what we're going to talk about. There was a sharpshooter. I mean, he was well known for how well he could shoot a gun. He was located in the hills of Tennessee, and so I figured since we're close to Tennessee, it's okay to talk about it. So there was a newspaper called the Nashville Banner, and there was a reporter in that newspaper that was dispatched to go find that fella and get an interview with him because obviously he was the best gunman of the century. So he makes his way, this newspaper man does, to the village where this sharpshooter is located. And he's amazed as he comes into the city limits that there are targets everywhere. I mean, there are targets on trees. There are targets on signs. There are targets on poles. There's even a target on the local church. And at the center of every one of those targets, there's a hole dead center. Obviously, he is a great, great shot. Perfect shot every time. So the newspaper man gets in town and he goes to the general store and asks the question, man, where in the world can I find this gun-toting hero? And so he talks to him for a few minutes. You'll understand what I'm saying. After a few minutes of chatting and chewing, uh, he decides that he's going to uh, follow the directions, and he gets them, and he's pointed to the west of town, and he's told that the guy's name is Lester, but he's warned, be careful when you go, because he's shooting all the time, and there's stray bullets everywhere. So he goes, he makes his way down the trail, and he finally follows and gets to the, where he can hear these bang-bang sounds. And pretty soon, he's face-to-face -face with this long-haired, wild-eyed guy that's the great shot that he's heard about. And so he says, man, you're some kind of shot, aren't you? To which it's just like crickets chirping. And suddenly, he gets one word in response. Yep. And so this guy, I mean, he, made his he makes his living writing words in a newspaper and all he gets is, yep. And so he says, I got to do something. So he says, uh, 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 you, you, you never miss, do you? To which he gets the response. Yep. And so the newspaper man goes on and he says, well, one shot. I mean, dead center in every target. That is absolutely amazing. And I just, I, I've been dispatched. I don't need to write a story about you if you would allow us. But I just need you to let me in on a little bitty secret. Mind telling me how you do it. And finally, somebody loosened the guy's tongue. And so he said, it's pretty easy, mister. I shoot first and then I draw the circles later. Well, it only works in some make-believe area I know far away from real life. Nowadays, where we're living, we need circles first type of thing in the here and now. In 1956, which I see some of y'all, y'all were y'all have heard tale of it, and some of you heard the, the later versions of this. There was a new game show that debuted. It was called To Tell the Truth. 
In that game, it's a classic show in which a person of some notoriety and two imposters sit on a panel and they try to match wits with four celebrities. The object of the game is to try and fool the celebrities into voting for the imposters. And for each wrong vote, they got $250. Of course, I said this was back in 1956. When they finally did the daytime version, they could only come up with $100 apiece. The whole precipice of this show was, how well can you lie? That's the whole show. Last thing I'll share with you before we get into chapter 6. I read a story of a man named Charles. He went from uh, relatively being unknown to great notoriety in a very short period of time. You'll understand why in just a moment. His name was unfamiliar to the people living in Boston back in 1920. But like a shooting star, this millionaire burst onto the local scene. Charles made his millions by encouraging other people to invest their money in him. He began a company. It was called the Securities Exchange Company. And get a load of this. It promised a 50% interest on on investments that were given to him for 45 days. In other words, you give him $100. In 45 days, you get $150 back. And he went further than that. He said that he would give a full 100% on 90 days. So, obviously... 40,000, actually more than 40,000 people immediately started handing this guy their money. He came up with nearly $15 million. Some folk were so convinced of it, they even mortgaged their homes and emptied their life savings to invest their money with Charles. In August of that year, Charles, and his last name was Ponzi, in case any of you ever heard that name, was arrested and he was charged with multiple counts of fraud and larceny. Since that time, the name Ponzi has become synonymous with fraudulent investments. I've always heard that if something sounds too good to be true, it usually is. And there are certain areas in our life where it really makes a big difference. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. In John chapter 6, we discover the real difference, the difference in real and the difference in fake. But we're not talking about money. We're not talking about mortgages. We're not talking about retirement. We're not talking about investments. We are talking today about eternal destinies. We've kind of dealt with that this week in Vacation Bible School. We've had the honor of sharing with girls and boys of the the wonderful story of Jesus Christ. And there are some of them who have invited Jesus to come into their heart and save them for their sins. And we praise the Lord for that. This passage deals with men who call themselves disciples and as to whether or not that title is really justified. In the book of John, a disciple is somebody who believes in Jesus, but it doesn't end there. I think that's where people get mixed up sometimes. It's okay just to believe in Jesus. Oh, you got to believe in Jesus. Well, the Bible says that the demons even believe, and it goes further than that with the demons. It says they tremble. If anybody knows about the power of God, it's demons. But they aren't saved. And there's a reason they're not saved. They've never invited Jesus to come into their heart and save them of their sins. So a disciple is not just somebody who believes in Jesus. It's somebody who believes in him and continues to follow him. There's an old adage that says the proof is in the pudding. Now, don't raise your hands. But how many of us know somebody 
maybe who came forward and made a decision for Christ at one time. But then something happened. They got discouraged and eventually went right back to where they started in the first place. I know that uh, so often it boils down to one thing. And that's kind of what the whole idea of the message is today. Do you mean what you say? When I was growing up, you could shake, your, shake hands with somebody and a, a, a truthful man, he could say, I'm as good as my handshake. But that doesn't necessarily take place anymore. It's not just about a handshake. It, mean, it, it boils down to do you really mean what you say? Now, let's just set it clear right quick. There's no question about what Jesus did for us. Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God. He loved us so much, the Bible says that He left the splendor of heaven. He came down, was born in a manger, and we celebrate that at Christmas time. The Bible says that He lived on this earth for 30 years, and after that 30 years, for three more years, He went around with His disciples. He did miracles. He led people to Christ. I mean, He did all kinds of things. And how did we reward Him with that? The Bible tells us that we rewarded him by scourging him, by beating him, by making blood flow down his precious back and come off of his brow. And then we finally took him and we laid him out on a rough, rugged cross. We drove nails into his hands and feet. We erected that cross between heaven and earth. People spat on him. People tried to put uh, sour vinegar into his mouth. And finally, he died on that cross. And he died on that cross for your sins and for mine. No, let there be no question about Jesus is worthy of who he is. When we go to him to ask forgiveness of our sin, that's right why we go to him. Because he did what he did. And I got one more good word for you before we go on from there. It doesn't just mean that he died for our sins and then he was buried in that tomb three days later. There's a great word. Andy sang about it in the first service this, this morning. Three days later, he arose. He is alive again. And he comes into the heart of each and every person who sincerely invite Jesus to come into their heart. So there's just a couple of things that I want to share with you this morning. The first one would be that true disciples make a commitment to follow Jesus. This is not rocket science. It's pretty easy. True disciples make a commitment to follow Jesus. Now, I know of nothing that is more exciting that gets a pastor or a staff member more excited to see somebody come into the front door of a church. Maybe they've never, never been here before. And so they come in and they take part in the worship service and they get excited. They might even start singing a little bit and they're just enthralled by what's going on. During the service, God pricks their heart. Maybe it's not that week, but the next week. But before too long, God does a work in their life. They come down the aisle and they invite Jesus Christ to come into their heart and to save them from their sin. They are gloriously saved. And once they get a dose of Jesus, oh my goodness, they just can't get enough. Y'all ever seen somebody like that? Just can't get enough of what's going on. And so for every time the doors of the church are opened, those people are here. They're here, they're excited, they're almost bouncing on their feet because they're so happy that they have Jesus in their heart or they, that, that, that they have a place to go and so they, they come and they come and they come. And then they're here on Wednesday night and then the next Sunday and the next Sunday. And for a couple of months, they're just so excited they never miss anything. And I don't know anything that's more exciting than that. But I don't know anything that's probably more discouraging than the first Sunday when those folk are nowhere to be found. 
And the following week, you kind of get a contact from them and they say, Hey, Pastor, sorry I missed you last week, but you know we had blah, 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 whatever it is. And so we were going to be gone and, 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 and they try to explain it all away. And the last thing they'll usually say was, You understand, don't you? And I think probably the pastor kind of half-heartedly shakes their head and, and then do that. Then they're here for the next several weeks. And then finally, they miss a whole Sunday and then another Sunday. And before you know it, they're kind of a once-a-month type person. Now, from where they came from, I think that's kind of sad. We need to be excited about what God's done for us. And we need to be faithful. And of course, I'm talking to the cream of the crop today. I also believe that it was a sad day. I don't remember this, contrary to popular belief. But on October the 1st, 1933. October 1st, 1933, there was a fellow who was called the Sultan of Swat. His name was Babe Ruth. He was a baseball pitcher for the New York Yankees. And he had done all kind of things. He was the home run king. He pitched complete games. He did awesome work. And they called Yankee Stadium at the time the house that Ruth built. But it was a sad day on October the 1st, 1933, because that day was the last day that Babe Ruth played baseball in Yankee Stadium. I'm sure it was a sad thing when all those fans stood up on their feet and offered thunderous applause as their hero walked off the field for the last time. But when I put this to a biblical context, I think probably the saddest version of the gospel is found in the book of John, chapter 6, verse 66. It says, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. Now, I just got to be honest with you. I don't get it. I don't get it. How can you walk with Jesus? How can you see him perform miracles? How can you see him interact with people and not continue to follow him all the rest of your life? But the, that's what it says. I think these folk are just like Simon Peter when he left his nets and boats to follow Jesus. But when he died, there was a line that says, I'm going back fishing. And I think the mistake Simon Peter made was that he didn't burn his boats and he didn't cut up his nets when he decided to follow Jesus. I think there's a lesson here. When you decide to follow Jesus, make no provision to ever go back to the world. Because if you have a loophole, a way to do it, you might do it. No one is immune from going back if you're living in the flesh. And that's just the way it is. But I don't want to be too critical of Simon Peter. Because you know what? Simon Peter was able one time to walk on the water. And I've tried it a whole bunch of times and I ain't been able to do it yet. So I'm not too critical of him because he was able to do it. A fellow that I know you know, name of Francis Chan, has a, a, a paragraph that he wrote in dealing with this, this text. He says that some people claim that uh, we can be Christians without necessarily becoming disciples. I wonder then... Why the last thing Jesus told us was to go into the world, making disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that he commanded. And you'll notice that he didn't add. But hey, if it's too much to ask, tell them to just become Christians. You know, the people who get to go to heaven without any, having to commit to anything. That's kind of in your face. That's kind of hard to hear. But so often we see folk that expect just that very thing. When in reality, when Jesus asks us for our lives, 
and to turn our lives over to Him, He wants us to use them for His glory. I've been intrigued lately in John chapter 21 when Simon Peter is on the seesaw with Jesus that day. Three times he denied Christ at the campfire and at the crucifixion. Later, he's on the seesaw with Jesus that morning. Three times, uh, Jesus says, do you love me? And Simon says, yes, I do. And then the responses. I've always heard sermons about those three responses, asking if Jesus, uh, uh, asking Jesus if he loved him. And Simon's responses. And I've always glossed over what Jesus said after that. But here this morning, Jesus said to Simon Peter after those three times, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. It goes on to say that he spake this, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And he concluded this passage with two little words. Follow me. Follow me. How many times have I done things the way that Bill thinks they ought to be done? I, I highly value myself. And so I think that's pretty good. But how often do I do them in the flesh the way that Bill thinks they should be done? That's not the bad part. So often, now that I don't do a lot of things that I once did before, because I'm getting a little bit older, like Brother Bill and I were talking earlier, but as we get older and I see things, and I, I, I think, well, boy, I tell you what, now, if they'd have done it like this, it'd have turned out a whole lot better. Am I talking to, to the wall back here? Nobody else has ever done this. Oh, if they'd have done it this way, we'd have had a whole lot more response. Oh, if they'd have done it like this, we could have got a lot more people here. And I'm reminded that the last two words are the important part of that passage. It don't matter what I think. It really doesn't. What is most important are the last two words when Jesus said, follow me. The fact of the matter is we're talking about people here who boasted that they were disciples of the Messiah. They defended Jesus when he was ridiculed. They wandered around with him from place to place to place. They cheered when he healed the lame man. And oh, they must have jumped up and down when the blind man suddenly was able to see. Oh, and their minds went absolutely crazy when they tasted the bread that Jesus got from that little boy's lunch that morning. And, and all of their problems seemingly had been uh, resolved and they joined in the throng wanting to make Jesus king. But now suddenly in this passage of scripture, they turn from him, their shoulders are slumped, their heads bowed low and they slink away Kind of like Opie Taylor when he was walking that back, that, uh, that, that dirt road, kicking that apple core and knocking up dust. They looked like real disciples. They acted like real believers, but they stopped following Jesus. That's what it says in verse 66. And in that moment, it became clear they were fakes. It's not enough just to believe. We have to be sincere. We have to confess False disciples come to Jesus for things other than Jesus. Y'all ever known somebody that comes to a church because they're having a potluck? Y'all ever know about a church that goes somewhere because they're giving away free balloons? Or something else like that. All kind of things. Or maybe to have their bellies filled. Or, or for some, uh, you know, around election time, we hear folks that show up because of political freedom. And uh, I want all your votes. 
or something like that, or maybe even to wield some power, a new, a new business in the community, and they sew up so hopefully they can get some, some business from the people at the church. And so because of all that, this gospel ends up getting preached. Hey, y'all. Come to Jesus and get what to get wealthy and well. Come to Jesus to succeed and prosper. Come to Jesus for everything except Him. Oh, my word. On the other hand, genuine disciples come to Jesus because they're hungry and He's the bread. Simple as it can be. Jesus is what we need in our lives. That's why it's so important that God do a work in us. It's an old story, but it fits here. I remember Dwight L. Moody when he was pastor at a church up in Chicago and he's walking down the sidewalk and he looks across the street and he sees this drunk stumbling down the street. Suddenly the drunk looks up, he sees Dr. Moody across the street and immediately he walks across the street. I'm sure a couple of cars have to stop, horns are honking because the, the fellow just walked straight across. He gets over to where Dr. Moody is, he pulls himself up and says... Dr. Moody, I just want you to know I'm one of your converts. <laughs> to which Dr. Moody said, well, sir, obviously you are because you're sure not one of Jesus's. There's a lot of truth in it. Here's a great question. If the Father has drawn you to the Son, you're going to love Jesus and not the things He does. You'll desire Him, not just His works. John Piper writes, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. Think about this now. If you could have heaven with no sickness, boy, wouldn't that be great? And with all the friends you've ever known on earth there, I'd like that too. And all the foods you ever like, which obviously means heaven's got to be pretty big because I think I like everything. But that's another story. And all the leisure activities that you have ever enjoyed there. And all the natural beauties that you ever saw. All the physical pleasures that you have ever tasted. And think about this, y'all. No human conflict. And praise God, no natural disasters. If that were it, here's the question. And don't answer it out loud. Could you be satisfied with heaven if Jesus wasn't there? You see, we have to get to the place that we realize that we do what we do because it's all about Jesus. In this text, a lot of false witnesses walk away from Jesus. Why? They left because it got too tough. Y'all ever known somebody who walked the walk and when it, they had to do a little bit too much, they decided it's not worth it anymore? It wasn't what they signed up for. They signed up for miracles. They signed up for popularity and freedom, but not this. Oh, my word, what they heard was too tough to accept. Which part? I don't know which part. Maybe they realized that Jesus was really claiming to be God. And they said, whoa, 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 hold up a minute. That's just a little too far. I don't know if I want to go that far with it. Or maybe it's because he was talking about dying. Dying? What? what, what? Dying? I mean, if you die... How are you going to feed us and take care of us down here? Because you won't be here. Verse 61 says, does what I've just said offend you? And there the word translated offend means to give up believing or to fall away. It's almost like Jesus is giving them a reason to quit. 
Second thing, not only do true disciples make a commitment to follow Jesus, here's such an important part. True disciples make a confession of faith in Jesus. It was an opportunity for the disciples to make that confession, and they did it. Now, it wasn't the only time this question was brought up in Scripture. Luke chapter 3, verse 10 through 14, the crowds were questioning him, and he said, because of the moving power of the Holy Spirit, oh my goodness, then what are we going to do? Over in Acts chapter 2, verse 37 and 38, the Bible says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Man, y'all were doing such a great job singing a few minutes ago. I could hear you and the spirit was moving. Man, it was awesome. Good job. Y'all been in services like that when the moving power of the Holy Spirit was working and one by one, maybe people started coming down the aisle and repenting of their sin and saying yes to Jesus. Maybe some people started getting things right with one another and suddenly the Spirit starts moving on you. And so you, just like them, say, oh Lord, what, what, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? When we're confronted like this, it's so important how we're going to respond. How we're going to respond to Jesus. Some people will scoff and react with outright rejection. Well, that's for somebody else, but boy, that ain't for me. Not me. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Some people will respond with a temporary and shallow faith. Remember when Jesus gave the example of the uh, parable of the seed and how some of it fell on stony ground? Don't you remember? It sprung up for a little while, but when the sun came at it, withered and it died because there was no roots. And some folk will respond with true faith. So as we start to wind down, there's just two things I want to share with you in closing. First off, every genuine confession of faith has two parts at least. First off, you've got to know who Jesus is. You've got to know who Jesus is. Simon Peter makes a clear affirmation of that. In verse 69, we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Now that term, Holy One of God, comes from the book of Isaiah who wrote extensively about the holiness of God. In chapter 6 of Isaiah, the prophet was transported in a vision into the throne room of God and he's so struck with the awesomeness of God and he cries out, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Y'all ever been in the presence of Holy God and you feel like everything you do is not worthy? And you look at God and you say, God, you are worthy. I am nothing. You are everything. Oh God, please help me. Please help me. Circling the throne of God are angels covering their feet and faces with wings and they're crying out with voices so loud they shake the foundations of the room. And what do they cry? They cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. To me, it sounds like Isaiah, when he's writing his book, is so tuned in to the holiness of God, he just can't get enough of it. In fact, 62 times in the book of Isaiah, he writes about the holiness of God. I mean, he just can't get over it. 25 times, he specifically mentions that phrase, the Holy One of God. Have y'all ever had anything impact your life so much that you just really can't get over it? I have. In the first service, she was sitting right down here. A lot of y'all know her. Her name is Vicki. She's about yay tall. Five foot two, little pony nose. Don't tell her I said that. But um, when we met each other, we were in college. 
And boy, it was like, stop the presses. There she is. And you know what I found out? She was engaged to somebody. That's not a good first impression. And she came to me and she said, oh, Bill, oh, such and such and such and such and such. And, such. and I would talk her back into going to him. And she'd go back and she'd come back the next day and be happy for a couple of days. And then something else would happen. And I would just go kicking myself. Why in the world did you tell her to go back to him? You the one you really want her. God worked it all out. And finally, she came around and we were married. And almost 40 years now, she has so impacted my life. I love her so much. I love her so much. She makes so much difference in my life. You know what? I have another something that has so blessed my life. It's being on staff at First Baptist Church in Olive Branch, Mississippi. I am so grateful for the privilege. The church I was serving at in Mobile at the time, we had three staff members and we rotated uh, hospital days. And I could go uh, to my two days a week. I could get everything ready. And by Thursday, I was just twiddling my thumbs. And if y'all know me at all, you know I don't like doing that. I want to have something to do. And so I started praying, God, just bring me someplace where I can stay busy. Boy, did he answer my prayer. <laughs> Had no idea that there was even such a place as Olive Branch, Mississippi. And so I came up here and I got here. And, and I remember the first week when we were on, on staff here, I was completely overwhelmed at all the things that were taking place. And so little by little, I have kind of made my life here. People keep asking me, what is it about me? That people keep asking me, hey, are you still working? When are you going to retire? If I have it once, I must have it a hundred times a week. When are you going to retire? I didn't know I was supposed to. There'll come a day. There'll come a day when I do retire, but it ain't today. And I tell you what, I'm honored to be in this church and to have a place of service here. And even when that day comes and I do retire, Olive Branch is my home. Olive Branch is my home and I will be here until God moves me someplace else if he does. All the folk I knew back home, they're in heaven now. This is home. So y'all be nice to me. <laughs> I'll get my bit. Okay. Well, you do have to know who Jesus is. And the last thing I'll share with you is you have to trust Jesus completely. I know it sounds simple, but genuine disciples believe Jesus. There it is. I could have just said that. We could have gone home. Genuine, genuine disciples believe Jesus. They reject any other way and any other path. Simon Peter's question in verse 68, Lord, to whom will we go? Here, here, let me answer that one for you. Nowhere! There is no place else to go. There's an old gospel song that says, Living below in this old sinful world, hardly a comfort can unfold. Striving alone to face temptation sore. And here's the line. Where could I go but to the Lord? We need to get to the place when He's all we got. I mean, He's plenty. But he, we need to be, get to the place where He is our everything. Our absolute everything. Final question. So how can you tell if somebody's genuine in their commitment to Christ? It's simple. Just keep an eye on them. Time. T-I-M-E. 
time. Many believers are committed to Jesus in some sort of way. But when some th something happens, they fall away. If they stick with it, there must have been something good down, in, down there. When we fully surrender to Him, we start loving the things He loves. I heard somebody recently say, and i got to say this slow because I won't get it out otherwise. A faith that fizzles was faulty from the first. And, but that's true. If you're not sincerely in a relationship with Jesus from the beginning, something's going to happen and you're going to fall away. So come to the point when you say, God, you're it. I have no one else to go to, no one else to turn to. You are my everything. You need to be genuine in what you say to the Lord. Yesterday, I was honored to take my wife to her family reunion. It's in the, the thriving metropolis of Colt, Arkansas. <laughs> you go to Forest City and hang a right. If you blink, you miss it. And so we went to the Colt, uh, Arkansas Community Center, which is just a little bitty building. Used to be just had one, one uh, window unit in it. They, they, they're upgraded now. They have a central unit so you can hear yourself talk. So we went to the reunion yesterday, and it was good for her to see family and to kind of get along with each other and see each other. All that was fine. Suddenly the two doors opened, and a wheelchair wheels in this old lady up in her 90s. Her name is Aunt Rachel. Rachel is the sister of Vicky's grandmother, who is now in heaven. There's just one or two of the family left. And so Aunt Rachel gets wheeled in, and oh, I wish you could have seen the smile on her face. She started hugging people and reaching out to them. And I, I even saw a couple of tears. And the whole time she was there, they wheeled her up to the table. She ate with us, had such a great time reminiscing. She went over and saw the pictures of things that used to take place at some of the reunions. As it always goes, it got to be on in the evening and it was time for us to make our way back over here. We went over and Vicki hugged Aunt Rachel's neck. And so then I reached down. She grabbed my hand. Boy, for an old lady, she's strong. I mean, I couldn't hardly get loose. And, and as my fingers were turning blue, I noticed, I couldn't help but notice her hand. Y'all, I don't want to be ugly or rude or anything. Bless her heart. Her hands looked like clouded saran wrap. I mean, the skin was so thin, it was just stretched. You could see it kind of stretching around her knuckles. And you could see all of her veins. And, and she would just hold on tight. And so finally, as she started talking at, at, to the captive audience, she looked at both of us. She knew that all of our parents are gone now. And she knew Vicky's mom especially was so close to her. She said, I'm so proud that y'all came this year. And I wanted to say, we've been there every year. But I didn't. I said, so glad y'all came this year. And then she looked right at Vicky, And she said, I won't be here next year. And then she said, but I'll tell your mama you said, hey. Why in the world would she say a thing like that? I don't know. Is she going to be there next year? I don't know. But what I do know is, I saw the look in her face. I saw the tears in the corner of her eyes that started flowing down over her cheeks. Let me say unequivocally, Aunt Rachel meant what she said. What about you? Do you mean what you say? Does Jesus Christ live in your heart? If He does, are you living for Him? If not,
in here just a moment, we'll have a time of invitation and response to the Lord. And maybe you need to come down. This altar will be open. There'll be some pastors here. Whatever it is God wants of you, my encouragement to you is, whatever He tells you to do, amen. Do it. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the day. I thank You for the privilege of being in this place. Thank You, Father, that these good people always make me feel like I'm at home. And I am. And I praise You for that. I pray, Father, that you would bless your word now as it has been shared. I know inadequately, but it's been shared. And Lord, what's most important is the part that says, follow me. So Lord, I pray that if there's someone here today that is yet to follow, that is yet to say yes to Jesus, or maybe they said yes, but they really weren't sincere about it. I pray that today might be the day that they make that right. Father, I don't know what the needs are here today, but you do. And I simply ask you, Father, to move in our midst as only you can. And for that, we will praise you. We love you, Lord. And we lift our prayer now in the precious name of Jesus.